Beloved, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, and as you're turning there, I do want to just uh, mention uh, that we finished our series in the Lord's Prayer. We are beginning the summer. There's some uh, things in the schedule where I don't want to start some long series uh, right now, and so I'm doing a bit of a one-off here. Uh, and it's partially due to the fact that uh, in our men's Bible study, we have recently been thinking about uh, some of the wilderness motifs in Scripture and uh, the idea that we are strangers and exiles, and I couldn't think of something uh, better than this for us to think about in our day uh, where we are seeing so many challenges in our culture and in our own lives and how we ought to be thinking about these things. So um, please stand as we read. Hebrews chapter 11 and verses 13 through 16, verses 13 through 16. Please hear the word of God. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to understand better what it means to live by faith and not by sight, to live as exiles and strangers rather than as permanent residents of this passing world. Our Father, we love you because you first loved us. Help us, Lord, to better live as pilgrims on our way to the promised land. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, there is a strong wilderness motif in Scripture. It teaches us that the people of God are pilgrims on the way. Pilgrims on the way. We think about uh, the exciting sort of adventurous history of America in the mid-19th century where people were we're going uh, west and uh, taking stagecoaches and, and going out to kind of make their life uh, out west. And, of course, many people died. Uh, lots of people took risks. Uh, but there was uh, land to be uh, cultivated and uh, adventures to be had. And, and they were pilgrims. Uh, they left their homeland to go somewhere else. And, and, and so we are called to be spiritual pilgrims on the way. Uh, we are to consider ourselves exiles, strangers, and aliens in this world. Uh, aliens meaning not of this world, not Martians. I read um, this past week that some guy uh, saw eight-foot aliens in his backyard after a UFO crashed nearby. Uh, I mean, this is on the front headline news of a major news organization. Extraordinary. Um, I don't know what that guy was smoking, but uh, it's still it made the news. Uh, but we are to consider ourselves aliens, strangers, 
exiles in the world, citizens of heaven, citizens of a better country who are traveling through the wilderness in this life to get to that better country. Of course, this wilderness motif we see uh, strongly in the Old Testament, and it starts out with the actual, as O. Palmer Robertson brings out in his, in his book, The Israel of God, it starts out in the history of Israel. Because in Israel, we know they were in bondage to, um, they were in bondage to Egypt uh, and enslaved to Pharaoh. And they were, of course, um, through the plagues of God, uh, released. And there was a great exodus, and they went through the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness. And the reason that they were to go out into the wilderness was to do what? To worship God. They were to go out to worship God, to walk with God, to abandon the idolatry and the slavery of Egypt and to go into the wilderness and to begin making their way towards what? The promised land. That's the history of Israel. And that history begins to make itself, um, works itself into the, 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 con- the self-consciousness of Israel and their, theolo- and their theology. So when you look at the Psalms and you look at the prophets, you see this wilderness language uh, being expressed so that the people of God are to think of themselves as exiles, as pilgrims, never to find or to understand this world as their final home. And then, of course, we come to the New Testament, this wilderness theme we see over and over again. And we see it from the very beginning because where was John the Baptist ministering? He was ministering out in the desert. And Christ came out to him in the desert, in the wilderness, and he was baptized. And that's where he began his public ministry. And then, of course, early on in his public ministry, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted there. And there's wild beasts there. Uh, There are those great temptations that came from Satan. And of course, he quoted Deuteronomy three times and, and, uh, and, and Satan fled and Christ overcame the temptations. Unlike, unlike Israel, when they were in the desert, they gave in to temptation. They worshiped the golden calf. They grumbled. They worshiped idols. Christ went into the desert and he overcame those temptations that the devil gave to them. Adam, of course, gave in to the temptation of the devil in paradise. Jesus did not. We give in to temptation in the wilderness in which we live. Jesus did not. He overcame those temptations for us. And then he gave his life as an atoning sacrifice on the cross. And so we ourselves, as God's people, are to understand ourselves as pilgrims, uh, as aliens, as strangers in this world. And when we do this... uh, The Bible makes it clear, it's the logic of Scripture, that we will then live lives by faith. It's when we understand ourselves as permanent residents here that we will find our hearts so discouraged. Because this world can be discouraging, amen? It can be discouraging. It can, the the burdens can be so weighty. And, and, uh, I'm sure you've noticed, like, like, uh, like, like most of us, that the news just keeps getting worse. Uh, the headlines are just awful. 
and it just seems like the world is is sort of spiraling, and uh, maybe someone could make the argument, well, pastor, it's always been like this, but I, I would argue, I've, I've been watching the news on some level for the last, you know, 20 years, and it just seems like it's as bad as it's ever been, um, and so if, if this world is, is what we see as our permanent residence and where we sort of put the, uh, the focus of our hearts, we will not be living by faith. We will be living by sight and we will be discouraged and overwhelmed and burdened and, and not very useful in the hands of our master. Uh, in fact, it's when we recognize ourselves and have a self-consciousness of being strangers and exiles and pilgrims on the way that we have a Christian identity. Uh, and that's very, very important as we consider this text. We are to have a heart that looks forward to Emmanuel's land, an eternal perspective. Um, Samuel Rutherford, uh, many of you will, will know, was a nonconformist minister who served as a representative at the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s. And he wrote this wonderful hymn, The sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks, the summer morn I've sighed for, the fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The Lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Whatever dreams or expectations we have had of this land, this new heavens, this new earth, this better country, it will be infinitely better than anything we have ever imagined. Hymns like this touch us with their beauty and, and poetry, but how can we ever properly explain or Envision this glorious land to which we will one day enter. Already in this text, in Hebrews 11, of course, which is a, a chapter which some will call the Hall of Faith, where there are various uh, uh, saints, as it were, um, holy men and women of God who have lived lives of faith. Some of them who make it into the Hall of Faith are, are surprising. You know, Samuel, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not Samuel, Samson. Samson makes it into the, the hall of faith, and 
um, and, and others that we would not expect. But the ones who have been mentioned uh, to this point in Hebrews 11 uh, are uh, Abel and, and Enoch and Noah and Abraham. And uh, set forth in these verses are some wonderful uh, points about these, these individuals. Uh, Abel uh, worshipped by faith and on God's terms. Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice. It's part of living by faith is living according to God's word and his requirements and worship. Sincere faith always seeks to worship God rightly and acceptably in form and in heart attitude. We worship in spirit and according to God's truth. And though dead, Abel still speaks. Then Enoch is mentioned. Enoch walked with God and then God took him. What a wonderful way to be described as one who walked with God. Is that the way someone would describe you, dear believer? Oh, that person walks with God. Enoch walked with God. Sincere faith draws near to God and longs for his company. True faith doesn't try to keep God at a distance, only calling upon him in times of trouble, Those with true faith walk with God in some measure. Those who have imitation or false faith do not walk with God. Then Noah is mentioned by the author. Noah believed God's word. He believed his bare word. That is uh, an exercise in extraordinary faith when you believe the bare word of God over what you see, over what you are experiencing, over the challenges that you are facing, you believe the bare word of God. That is faith. Noah believed the bare word against all common sense and cultural and social pressure. He built a giant ark on the land, because God had told him that a massive flood was coming. He believed the bare word of God. People were putting pressure on him and mocking him, but he built the ark. His faith evidenced itself in unyielding obedience. True faith does this. It obeys even when it doesn't make sense to do so even when others mock and scoff at us. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. And then finally, in this section before our verses, he mentions Abraham along with Sarai. He was, he was willing, Abraham was willing to live as a nomad, as a pilgrim, valuing that which was to come more than that which was fading away. He lived as an exile in this world with no permanent home, not unlike Daniel. He received God's promise for a nation, but would never live to see the realization of it. As John Calvin says, the promise was just as substantial as the realization to inform and empower the manner in which he lived. Let me say that again. The promise was just as substantial as the realization to inform and empower the manner in which he lived. Abraham lived. And so all of this comes prior to our verses for this evening. Verse 13, 
These that we just mentioned, they all died in faith. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And that's the first thing I want us to see this evening is that living by faith means living as a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. We are to be in the world, but not what? Of the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. It's an important distinction because so many don't get this. So many are of the world and so begin to allow the world to creep into their lives, into their, their thinking, their mindset, their belief system. And so these, these cultural ideologies which are being pushed on us through institutions, through stores, through uh, podcasts, through the news, through entertainment, as all of these things are being pushed on us, rather than saying, no, I'm a pilgrim in this world and I live according to Scripture, I live according to the law of Christ, not according to the, to the, the ideologies of this world, rather than do this, they allow these things to impact them and their lives begin to change in all the wrong ways. But living by faith means living as a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. Verse 13, look there again. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They saw them with the eyes of faith. They saw them with the eyes of faith. And they greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And so living by faith means not living according to the wisdom and values of this present evil age. This evil age has its values. This evil age has its dogma, its doctrine. It's trying to disciple you and your children. But we live as pilgrims by faith, not living according to the wisdom and values of this present evil age. Look with me at 1 Peter. Just a couple of books over. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. And let's see how uh, those whom Peter is addressing are acknowledged. 1 Peter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's how they are acknowledged as exiles, how they are agreed. Look at chapter 2. Verses 11 and 12. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so this kind of, of language and how 
Christians ought to think of themselves is, is really important as we think about our self-consciousness as Christian believers. Think of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego living as faithful Christians in a foreign land where there are idols all around them and the ways of the unbelieving world all around them. Living by faith also means being willing to obey no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. We see this in Hebrews 11. Uh, Abel lost his life. Abraham left everything. Daniel and his three friends were willing to die. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the rest of the prophets were willing to give up all to live as strangers in this world. Living by faith means responding to Christ's call to discipleship. Remember what he says in Luke 9, 23 and 24. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's, it's just counterintuitive. If you want to save your life, you must what? Lose your life. It's counterintuitive. This is the call to discipleship. To grow, we must deny ourselves. To follow Christ, we must take up our cross. And God's grace, when we are born again, it, 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 it makes us willing in some measure to follow him in this way. Those who are all about self-protection and not wanting to do anything that costs as a Christian are not Christians. There is an element of cost, a willingness to surrender all, to give all, it doesn't mean that there aren't those who, uh, because of nervousness or, or whatever, may not make the right decision at certain times or uh, might uh, try to preserve their life in a way that is, is, um, is, is, is wrong in particular circumstances around the world. But here's the point. Christians are called to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Christ at all costs. What kind of a relationship with God would it be if there was anything less of a call than that? In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in World War II, a Lutheran pastor, wrote a book called The Call to Discipleship. And he essentially said in this book, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, you must be willing to die for him. And he says this about the kind of grace that does not have any expectation or requirements of God's people. And again, this is not in any way undermining God's free grace in the gospel. But it's God's free grace in the gospel that brings us into union with Christ. And when we are in union with Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. And when we have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's working in us so that we are willing to bow the knee to King Jesus and to give all for him. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution 
without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the cost of discipleship. Well, secondly, living by faith means not receiving all the promises in this life. Look with me again at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So many expressions of modern evangelicalism, modern Christianity, focus on the blessings of the here and now. Come to Christ, they say. Go to church and you will have a better life, a better marriage, a better family, a better income, better health. Now, there will inevitably, I would argue, be improvements in one's life, typically, generally, when they do the things that God says to do. But that's not the point of the Christian life, to have a better life in this world, to have your best life now. But as it states in verse 13, we see here that those who lived by faith did not receive what was promised. When we think of Abraham, we know he was promised many things by God in Genesis chapter 12 through 17. He was promised descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands in the seashore. He was promised a promised land and that through his family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But Abraham never received these things in his life on earth. But he would receive them, of course, in the next. Sons and daughters of promise in heaven. He would have sons and daughters, spiritual sons and daughters, who are the true sons and daughters of Abraham in Christ. He would, of course, have the land of promise and the new heavens and the new earth, Emmanuel's land. And he would have infinite blessings in Christ. Isn't this reason, dear ones, to lay up treasures in heaven and not focus on building up storehouses on the earth? How often do we need to be reminded of this, especially living in such an affluent area like Mount Pleasant, Charleston? Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I remember many years ago there was a song uh, about lumber being given uh, to these two different people, and one of them was using it, the lumber, to build their uh, mansion on the earth, and the other one was sending it up to heaven, sending it up to heaven. And so when they both died, uh, the one got up there, and, and uh, they were, I think they were both Christians, if I remember correctly, and the one who had really focused on building up his mansion on earth got up there and he said, uh, well, where's my mansion? And they said, there's your little shack right over there. This is the lumber that you sent up. There's hardly any. And then the other guy looked over and he had this beautiful 
mansion. Now I know these things aren't biblical the way this is played out. But the point is that he sent up his resources, as it were. He stored up his treasures in heaven while the other focused on treasures on earth. Where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. And it's my prayer for Christ church as we go into this next 10 years that the treasure of our hearts as a congregation will be the conversion of the lost, the raising up of missionaries, that we would, the treasure of, treasure of our hearts would be growing in godliness and, and Christian maturity and our children embracing Christ, being discipled, that this would be the treasure of our hearts. There are many things we need in this life. We need, as I think about this monstrosity of a overpass being built next to our building and you know, how are we going to manage all of this? There are these real life things that we need to deal with, but we don't want to take our eye off of Christ and off of the most important things. And so let us, may our treasure be in heaven um, and there our hearts will be also. Finally, beloved, living by faith means seeking a better country. Seeking a better country. Are our eyes on Emmanuel's land? Beulah land. What the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. The, the promised land. That city whose builder and maker is God. Is that... Is that what we are thinking about, meditating on, heading towards as we read in Pilgrim's Progress that, that movement from uh, the homeland to the celestial city? Are we on that journey? Do we think of our lives in that way? Philippians 1.21 says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is that? Because we will gain heaven. We will be in the presence of God. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven and from it, from heaven, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We live, beloved, by faith with a prospect of heaven. It's like being up on a mountain and seeing the beautiful scene in the distance and heading there. Faith is a pilgrimage. We think linearly as, 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 as Christians. We have a, a start, we have a between, and we have a finish. We are on a road. We have a destination. We are not simply wandering. We have a destination. John Calvin says in Hebrews, in his, in his commentary on Hebrews, we are hence to conclude that there is no place for us among God's children except we renounce the world and that there will be for us no inheritance in heaven except we become pilgrims on earth. Unquote. So as we approach the Lord's table to receive from him grace and forgiveness, 
Let us ask ourselves, are we, are you living like a pilgrim and an exile? Or are you living like a permanent resident? Whether you're 20 or 80, are you living like a pilgrim or like a permanent resident? The Bible calls us to live like pilgrims. Are you consumed with what you can gain from this world or are you storing up treasures in the next? Let me encourage you, especially those that are young, do not get caught up in trying to so-called keep up with the Joneses. Do not get caught up in that rat race. Make decisions now that you will store up treasures in heaven, that you will honor the Lord with your finances, that you will not think about life in terms of getting the next best thing, the, the better model, the larger this or the larger that, but, but that your hearts, and again, it's not bad to have nice things. It is bad for nice things to have you. But the focus of our hearts ought to be, as pilgrims, the promised land. Are we treasuring up, are we storing up treasures, rather, in the next life? Are we living by faith? Or are we living by sight? These are questions, beloved, that this text forces us to ask as we learn about these great men and women of old. Let us go to the table asking God to forgive us for having such a focus on this world and ask Him, by His grace, to give us more of that heart of a pilgrim a heart that understands the cost of discipleship and is willing to follow Christ from the wilderness to the promised land. Let's pray. Our Father, we experience the thorniness of the wilderness land. We have burdens. We have fiery trials. But we thank you for the promise of Christ that while we may have many troubles, he has overcome the world. And in his name, united to him, we travel through this wilderness as pilgrims, as citizens of heaven to the promised land. Help us, O oh God, to live by faith and not by sight, to have that prospect of heaven and to store up treasures in heaven rather than here on the earth. O oh Lord, we pray that we would be useful in your hands. We thank you for your amazing grace and that in Christ we have been set free from the law of sin and death, that, that we are promised the inheritance of everlasting life and, and the resurrection from the dead. But, Lord, we want to spend our lives now for you. Help us to do so by your Spirit, for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name.